people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. Hello, welcome to Twelve Rules for What. My name, as ever, is Sam, and this is an interview I did a while back with Emma Majewska who's a Polish author, feminist theorist, and anti-fascist, um, about her book, Feminist Anti-Fascism, which you can get now from Verso. It's a really great book. I recommend it. And here's the interview. I was going to begin by simply saying that the book is very exciting, and it's also full of stuff. Um, there's like discussions of Ophelia's role in Hamlet, uh, Antigone, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, anti-abortion restriction laws, um, what you call counterpublics of the commons, that's the subtitle of the book, um, discussions of the kind of the fil filmmaker theorist, uh, Alexander uh, Kluger, and of course, anti-fascism and of course, feminism. So it's kind of difficult to know, at least for me, where to start with questions. So I was wondering, if the very first thing is, could you give us a brief kind of tour through the book? Like, how do you see this book as kind of being uh, organized overall? Thank you so much for, for, for the kind words uh, about the book. And I do, understand that it has a variety of uh, of um, uh, topics and uh, so therefore it could be confusing but I believe that we do live in confusing times and actually uh, the efforts well my experience of several um, conferences consecrated to anti-fascist research or studies on fascism etc um, actually make me a bit frightened about the ability of of this sort of very clean theoretical approach, very kind of straightforward approach to the topic that we're discussing because uh, we are not in the 1930s anymore. And one of the differences, as I try to emphasize, is that is the diversity of the experience, of the embodied, embodied experiences of identities. We are not living in like binary codes anymore. We're living in, you know, a plethora of, of genders, a plethora of performative, you know, identities and also, if you come from Poland, uh, you know, East European country, former communist country, state communist, whatever, state communist country, um, you are also somehow you're white, but you're like second class white, you're, you know, uh, central, but also you're peripheral. There is, you know, so this is an experience of a, of a mixed, of a mixed nature. This is a hybrid, this is hybrids that we're, you know, approaching. So basically I wrote my book in this style to emphasize this hybridity, uh, this metisage, you know, this twisted kind of mixed origins of the person speaking, of the, of the author speaking, of the stories that I'm accounting, of the complexity of doing anti-fascism in a world where not only fascism takes diverse um, forms, but also where the, 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 the embodied substance of society is so diversified, is so perplex that, you know, so, so one strategy, and I believe this is one usually taken in fascism studies, especially fascism studies inspired by, I don't know, Hannah Arendt, you know, classical kind of liberal political theory, the approach is to clean the diversity, but then this cleansing, and I'm using the word on purpose, obviously it's not as dramatic as the fascist gesture to erase you know, Jewish population from, from the earth, but it is a cleansing that builds in our minds a illusionary and ideological image of, of, of clarity. 
which is not affordable today, which is not, I'm sorry, accessible today, right? So, um, so, 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 so this is why the book is so hybridic. So basically, you know, the, the feeling is that, and also I, I think that fascism, uh, sorry, anti-fascist research has to somehow embrace, somehow embody the, the actual experience of refugees, of, uh, you know, border crossing. These are experiences that, uh, you know, at least requires require a dialectical approach. At least, at the very, this is the least we can do for. for. No, that's great. I, I I think that's a great justification for the style the book comes in. But I think it's a mm -hmm. it's a it's a way of doing theory that is. Um, uh, I don't want to say adequate because, of course, that's like this kind of Aristotelian like correlationist idea. But um, uh, that is kind of open to the richness of life. You have this um, other essay which was published in Eflux a while back. Uh, Feminism will not be televised, <laughs> where you write it's a it's a, a great line. I want the whole life, not just bits of it. Uh, I think that the the capacity to like draw in the whole of life into uh, the way in which you think is is, is a useful way of like certainly because you actually you actually appreciate a sentence by uh, Zofia Naukowska, a feminist you know a proto feminist from the, the sentence comes from 1907, so it's actually so I'm quoting her and I'm trying to continue her legacy because I agree with her on a number of topics, and one of them is precisely this demand that we do not as 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 women she says we do not want to be divided between those holy mothers and the unholy prostitutes basically so this uh, sentence comes in the context of sex work and and you know efforts to, to address sex workers and sex work as, a, as, a, as, a, as an issue from the perspective of emancipated feminine like feminism is not the word she uses so basically emancipated femininity or something like this so uh, you live in Warsaw, which you kind of note at the beginning of the um, the book in the introduction as a kind of a way of like situating uh, how you're engaging with this kind of mixture that you already alluded to. Um, and you discuss Poland in uh, both its kind of contemporary and historical forms, both uh, particularly in relation to its kind of um, clampdown on reproductive rights um, recently um, under the kind of the United Right Coalition, the uh, the Law and Order, Law and Justice Party, I think it is in in, in English. Um, mm -hmm. But you also talk about it in relation to, um, forgive me, I'm not going to be able to pronounce it in, in Polish, what we call in English solidarity, the uh, the movement solidarity, uh, which have kind of famously uh, had a hand in uh, the collapse of uh, or the decline of um, uh, state communism in, in, in Poland. Um, what is it that you draw from this latter example, from the example of solidarity, like um, both as a kind of, um, in some ways, a a thing that is in some ways hopeful in constructing a kind of counterpublic, but also something that, is, that fails, that then has a kind of reactionary turn that turns against, for example, the struggle for women, um, turns against the struggle for reproductive rights and so on, and you know, um, begins to kind of chide women and do these kind of things. How is it that you're reading solidarity as a movement, um, particularly one that is in its official histories has like obscured the place of women as well? So I was kind of wondering, maybe, like, maybe you could speak to that a bit. I would love to, uh, especially, because it's a super hybridic topic uh, in, in the context of, of my life, my research and, and, and the book. So it's uh, fantastically uh, mixed up somehow because uh, I'm a, what you call in, in Poland, there is a Fraser word, um, children of, of Solidarność. So people born around 1980, the moment when Solidarność movement began. And I was born two years before it. So my first demonstrations are actually a shipyard of Gdańsk. You know, the shipyard was called um, uh, Lenin's shipyard. So you have the, the, the letters, you know, uh, W, I, 
uh, Lenin, you know, at the gate of the shipyard where, and, and below it you have uh, in, the, in the time of the strike uh, in the shipyard in, in 1980, you have the picture of the Polish Pope, uh, John Paul II, yeah? So it's a beautiful, and in the middle there is Wałęsa and a lot of other people, you know. So basically th this is the typical image of, 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 of the beginning, for the beginning of Solidarność. And I like this image very much because it does not hide the so-called ordinary people from the image. Yeah? So, so there is Wałęsa, there are those, you know, the Pope, there is Lenin uh, in the form of letters. Uh, there is the gates, so the repressive apparatus of the state somehow, yeah, and or or, or the private public division as well as signalized by the gate. And then there is a mass of people, of workers on one side, and of uh, those who don't work at the shipyard but who support uh, their families and, and friends on the uh, on the other side, so that's the image. So it's perfectly hybrided, fantastically contradictory. Hmm? And this is 1980. So the, the, the Pope. Yeah, this is this is so, the, okay. Yeah, this is the gate of the of the Gdańsk shipyard in the time when right in the territory of the shipyard there is the general strike. But mm -hmm. basically, yeah, the strike um, became general in a sense that you know they started to 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 the, the strike in the shipyard of Gdańsk in the middle of August 1980. And it was a solidarity strike with a woman worker of the shipyard who was fired three months before retirement. So it was really atrocious. And as she was a very kind of maternal figure to many of the workers, but also as she voiced something that is a fantastic repetition of uh, classically the Bordian you know, slogan that this is not life, this is survival. Uh, so, so this is not leaving, but this is surviving that we that we do under those conditions. So this is what she said to the to her chief in the shipyard, and he fired her. So the, the strike started in support of this particular woman. So you, you have to imagine the shipyard of Gdańsk. I don't know if you have ever seen the shipyard. It seems to be like uh, uh, already a museal uh, kind of um, object. So it was like a city in a city. 30,000 people were employed. There were bus lines, there were restaurants, there were um, even medical you know, entities, lots of huge uh, spaces with, you know, able to, capable to build ships, which were, I don't know if you have seen a ship from close, it's a huge <laughs> metal. <laughs> seen a ship. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a, I mean, you know, we're, we're talking about things that happened 40 years ago, and yet some elements are already invisible, you see, so I'm not trying to kind of, you know, to play this older, younger uh, game. I'm, I'm not doing that, in fact. In fact, what I'm trying to do is to discuss the visibility, invisibility of, of materialized elements, because they all count in the account of the shipyard events. So they all count as, you know, a very kind of uh, industrial uh, environment. Uh, so uh, the possibility of strike in an industrial place is more kind of obvious. Then we have also those holy holy instances of the of the of the pope then there is lenin so so lots of very contradictory and then ordinary people on the shipyard side by the way one third of the of those 30000 workers of shipyard of Gdańsk were women not just office workers they were the, the woman fired anna valentinovich was a crane operator so so this also tells you about a little bit about the Polish sort of state communist society where women were really involved in the industrial work in every sector of work, basically. Um, so it was quite egalitarian as, uh, in terms of gender. On the other hand, obviously each of those women employed in the shipyard had to run back home after her daily shift to feed and take care of the husband and, and the children and whoever else was there to take care of. So therefore it was again a contradictory 
no, so a beautiful, you know, a beautiful entity for a Marxist uh, scholar to, to dwell in because country, <laughs> no, I, I, I regret that Walter Benjamin could not see, see that because he would be perfect to just, you know, make some sort of passage and but work, but not in the, you know, in the in the shop centers, but in, in the industrial spaces. So basically, you know, so this contradictory experience so difficult to explain because I just started, you know, you asked uh, like, give me some, you know, some elements of of, of the strikes in Gdańsk, and I'm trying, but I'm still in the prolegomena. Yeah, let's go, let's go, 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 go for it, go for it. Yeah, yeah, but the, but what I'm trying to say is that this experience that is so central for the lives of Polish people and also for the lives of people globally, because at the, at the time those strikes happened, and then at the moment when the striking brigades from shipyard of Gdańsk and from a plethora of other workplaces met a consensus with the authorities of the Communist Party, because this is what happens in the end of August 1980, they reach a compromise. And this compromise um, covers, for instance, uh, for the possibility of the making of the independent labor union. So then uh, independent labor union is created in consecutive months of 1980. And by March 1981, it has 10 million members. Poland is a, at that time was a society of 30, I think, seven millions. And so more than one, uh, one fourth belonged officially as official members to Solidarność. I'm, I'm mentioning those because those are, are numbers and entities that we find unimaginable. A labor union of 10 million of, of workers can be imagined perhaps in a global scale, but not really in a scale of a mid-size, medium-size uh, um, uh, country. So what I'm trying to do with this example is to, at first, to re uh, resuscitate some elements of the Central European heritage, because this is clearly Central European. It's, it's a Polish example, but it covers for several other places in uh, Eastern Europe. And I'm trying to suggest that um, aside from looking at the fantastic uh, Black Lives Matter movement or you know other examples from the United States or so free speech movement, a fantastic inspiration, uh, or South Africa, you know Nelson Mandela and the Congress of uh, uh, National Congress of Africa. So those emancipatory anti-racist movements, which often are being cited in Poland as beautiful examples of anti-fascism, which they are, not to be con uh, confused. They are external, they, they, they cover for experiences that on one hand we share in some way, structurally for instance, certain similarities between the uh, movement of Nelson Mandela in South Africa and the Polish Solidarność can be traced down, so this is good, but then we have this experience of Solidarność. So I'm for instance trying to re-evaluate the, the heritage of Solidarność to see, okay, what is anti-fascist in there? But perhaps this is, you know, perhaps the, the possibility of, first of all, of, of egalitarian treatment of, of men and women, which to some extent was preserved in, in, in the shipyard and in the early Solidarność. So it was, you know, it was a, a movement which, in which we know by names women. You know, previous uh, oppositional movements almost don't have women in, the, in their descriptions. Now in early Solidarność, we finally see women's names. We see Anna Valentinovich, the screen operator. We see Henryka Krzywonos. Also the early Solidarność movement was extremely socialist. It was actually based on principles of Abramowski, of Kropotkin, of this kind of, uh, you know, anarcho-syndicalist kind of, you know, uh, 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 
or anarchist communism, th this kind of this kind of inspirations were super central in the in the first version of Solidarność. Therefore, it was you know it was it was actually somehow attacking the, commun the, so the communist party, the state communist party from the left. You know, it was even more kind of egalitarian and and. Uh, uh, you know, democratic, then uh, so it was like a Luxembourgian take on on, on Bolshevism. Let's, let's put it this way. Yeah? So basically, I do not believe in anti-fascism made apart from like class struggle and labor struggle. I think work is a fantastically central element of anti-fascism and also of you know fascist doctrines. So um, although I build my analysis of fascism starting from Carl Schmitt and starting from Georgia Agamben and Judith Butler and other people who look at the current situation as well as the historical situation from the perspective of the state of exception. But this state of exception cannot avoid workplaces. It's wrong, basically. So it's uh, you know so so although in in Schmidt's uh, analysis of of the, of the of the of the state of exception, you also see like labor context mentioned, then in Agamben's context, for instance, it almost disappears because Agamben only mentions it when he speaks of the homo satyr of today, therefore the, um, the refugees, for instance, as those who are accused of, of taking the jobs of others. But he does not dwell into the context of labor, how is, how is, labor, how is work organized, etc. So here I'm going more towards the Italian, you know, operaist uh, Marxists who focus on, on the structure of work. So, Back in the 70s, they were focusing on factory work because this is what they were. Um, this is what was still the lived uh, reality of labor. And then, then they go towards more postmodern, I would say, uh, organization of labor, which we witness today in many uh, layers of the society, meaning the virtualized kind of biopolitical labor. So I'm, I, I'm thinking that doing the analysis of fascism solely outside of the workplaces makes no sense whatsoever. We need to see to what extent the, the workplaces also are factories of marginalization, of execution, I would say, of discrimination based on, because the word discrimination sounds today very fluffy. So I would say execution of discrimination, and then perhaps it sounds a little bit more dramatically, which I need to, to, to build, you know, the, the kind of rhetorics that, that that I want to be a little bit more engaged than just descriptive, because I don't want to merely describe the, 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 the society. This is a theory that guards, you know, uh, preserves this kind of heritage from, from the um, uh, critical uh, theory and Frankfurt School, which basically um, situated, you know, social sciences and human, humanities um, at the core, not only of not, not merely of, of, of describing the society, but of, you know, trying to analyze it in ways that could help to emancipate the people. Maybe I can go back a bit and see if I could kind of summarize um, some okay. of the things you were, you were saying earlier. Um, so the importance of looking at solidarity in particular in the Polish context, as you have a Polish far-right government, um, and possibly what describing as, as fascism as well, um, in Poland, the reason for this, to looking particularly at solidarity is that it allows Polish anti-fascists to have a story that is of resistance, or maybe let's say even weak resistance, although we'll, we'll get to that a bit later, it has allows them to have a story of resistance that is nevertheless quite close to home. Um, that is kind of like relevant to the kind of the path that Polish society has undergone um, in particular, rather than trying to abstract some ideals from, um, you know, the anti-apartheid struggle um, and so on. Um, I think that, that sounds like a really good strategic reason for focusing on, on solidarity. You also mentioned um, Berlant. Um, who has uh, whose most kind of probably famous book is Cruel Optimism, 
which is about ways in which um, hoping in something, hoping for something, um, produces exactly the failure of that thing that you were trying to get it to achieve. Right. So, it, yeah. So it's it's a it's a kind of a tragic uh, like version of hope, right? Um, and it seems like uh, tragedy and the tragedy of hope in this um, uh, in the context of solidarity also produces kinds of let's say distortions or difficulties for resistance in Poland today. Um, in the way people remember solidarity, the way people remember um, that movement and how they think of it as giving them lessons produces the distortions of the thing they're trying to achieve. So maybe you could tell us exactly what kinds of problems mm-hmm. do they do? Does contemporary Polish anti-fascism mm-hmm. or resistance to um, mm-hmm. the far right government more generally face <laughs> when it tries to imagine solidarity in a particular way? And okay. how can you can correct that? At first, I, I need to catch you. Do, do you have this idiom, catching somebody by a word or something? Or you can go for it. I, mean, I, I think we could, we could do. Um, I, we I, 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 <laughs> I do that. Uh, and it's not uh, nothing personal. It's basically uh, an important element of, of, of the theoretical background I come from. And it's about you sort of deducing from, from the fact that I'm speaking about somehow peripheral events of Poland, you deduce from that that they are only applicable for the Polish anti-fascism. No, they are not. So basically, whatever you were thinking, you are probably not thinking that. But you know, I try to I try to build a rhetorical figure here to. That's to good. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so uh, the, so I'm trying to do to repeat the kind of universalizing gesture that is being done from the United States, especially, but also in the UK and other countries belonging to the global uh, North and global core countries, as Emmanuel Wallerstein says. I think. Our experiences with Solidarność are fully um, uh, universalizable. And I'm trying to do that, actually. So I'm not just, you know, it's not just about Poland, because we will see, for instance, you ask, you, you ask about the problems that, um, that anti-fascists face in Poland, I would say everywhere, almost everywhere. It's anti-genderism. I think this movement opposing gender theory, opposing the theory of fluidity of gender, of performative uh, cultural constructing of human identities, and then subjecting some of those identities to violence and some of them to dignified life. This is a problem. So this problem of anti-genderism is a problem, I would say, globally expanding. I hear it from Brazilian comrades in feminism. I hear it from Argentina, from Mexico, from South Europe, uh, Italy, uh, Spain all kinds of places, also Russia, amazingly um, homophobic, I would say, state apparatus. I don't want to say that all Russians believe that. I think the, the all kinds of efforts to resist the, um, uh, uh, the, 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 the anti-misogyny, basically, and also um, homophobia uh, that has been institutionalized in Russia is amazing, and I do appreciate it a lot because it faces huge challenges that I couldn't even dream of. Basically, the repression is, um huge so so the interesting thing is that this kind of re- embrace re i would say of ultra conservative fascist ideology is globalized and unfortunately we are facing similar problems and the interesting there is an interesting book coming out in which i'm very honored to participate which is called um, uh, mutual aid and as you might already deduce it's following on Kropotkin's, uh, you know, idea of mutual aid, and basically, it's trying to find various ways of 
you know, of, of, of um, uh, reminding of this heritage, of developing it, of showing its elements in various uh, movements. So I'm discussing the feminist mobilizations and movements, like Me Too, for instance, I'm discussing it as a form of mutualette, believe it or not. So um, so what I'm trying to say is that this very classical format that the shipyard of Gdańsk and the Gdańsk events, the Solidarność movement has taken, is one that has been discussed in Russia, in West Europe, you know, in France, in, in all kinds of, in, in, the, in the United States. So, um, uh, so basically this book, uh, The Mutual Aid, was co-edited by several fantastic people from the Czech Republic by, um, and also by Katrin Malabu, who proves to be a fantastic expert on mutual aid and Kropotkin and anarchism, uh, historical anarchism um, in particular. And she gives it a contemporary kind of post-Hegelian um, shape. Um, so in this book, I'm discussing feminist actions as solidarity-based, and therefore I'm kind of like, okay, women and women speak of women's strike, you know, in the US and in, in Poland first, in Argentina, in the US. So this notion of strike is coming back in those very different conditions. We are not industrial, you know, societies anymore. We're kind of post-industrial. Although interestingly, in Poland, Poland used to be for many years, um, the main, the, the, the major factory producer, basically on our territory, um, the amount of factories was the biggest in the European Union. I believe now it's moving more towards Romania and Bulgaria, but for several years, right after we joined the European Union, lots of factory production has been sent to Poland. So it was fantastic to see this procedure of, you know, big companies bringing in their factories. And yet on the other hand, um, the discourse of post, you know, uh, post, post work, narrative, expansively taking over uh, political and, and theoretical debate. So we had a complete schizophrenia between the factual reality, which was that actually fa factory work was developing, uh, was, was, uh, was, was, was becoming larger. And on the other hand, um, the, the theoretical approach to uh, immaterial labor and, and all those phenomena, which obviously are present in some sort of way, but they do not exclude. So basically, as you see, diversity of reality is fantastic and, and we should preserve it. So basically for anti-fascism, it is important to notice that feminism and women's topics and gender topics are central now in various forms of radical right wing, which we can try to call fascist in this or that way, in this, in certain degree, perhaps. Obviously, I'm, you know, I'm trying to be careful with historical comparisons and there, you know, between Nazi Germany and today's, uh, I don't know, anti-gender movement, there is still a huge discrepancy and I want it to stay like this or even diminish. I don't want it to grow, but I want to use the word fascism because I don't want uh, our, focus and concentration to go elsewhere. I don't want us to discuss whether it's post-fascism, neo-fascism, quasi-fascism, you know, uber-fascism, un unter-fascism, whatever else. I've heard all those notions. I appreciate the scholarship that is behind this research and this effort to emphasize the differences between today and 1930s. I, I respect that, but I find it extremely annoying that in the end of the day, we start debating between neo and post-fascism rather than analyzing what is happening and how to contradict it. So to me, a lot of anti-fascist work and a lot of anti-fascist theoretical debate has been consecrated to, seriously, it's like angels on the on the needle, uh, you know, medieval kind of dilemma in, 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 uh, in Christian philosophy, how many angels can sit on the needle, I don't care. This doesn't matter. It matters where the needle goes to, who is using it, and what kind of clothes are going to be, you know, made with it. That 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 is what matters. So therefore, I'm using the word fascism rather than anything else, 
sometimes emphasizing the differences in degree in, in but the constraints that today's fascist uh, um, tendencies have are exactly the same as, as uh, the constraint, the, the focuses, the, the, the um, aims uh, are exactly the same. The depreciation of femininity, weakness, uh, womanhood, so therefore also gayness and whatever other non-binary, non-masculine identity are at the core, always. And this is this similarity. I, I have fantastic friends in Poland who are researching as sociologists um, and as cultural studies scholars, uh, the anti-gender movement. So I've been reading a lot of their work, uh, you know, details, um, uh, interviews, you know, analysis of their leaflets and other materials, etc. And in this, um, uh, in the, so those researchers have not been using the word fascism to make a um, general kind of uh, framework for it. Now they start to. So this to me means that I was right perhaps some years ago, emphasizing the fact that we should discuss fascism. We should also discuss the, the, the different media they are using, different strategies. For instance, you know, in, in fascist Germany, most of the laws have been introduced centrally. So the anti-Jewish laws, anti-Semitic laws were introduced from, from the core of the state apparatus. That, and it was sort of, you know, a kind of, um, this was expanding to more peripheral context. In Russia and in Poland, uh, we, we are witnessing uh, introduction to homo of the homophobic zones. The zones which are in Poland, they were called uh, LGBT free zones. It's like Jews free shops, no? It's exact, so, so even the, the wording was similar. So to me, it was a fascist gesture. And I, I'm not trying to say that Kaczynski is exactly Adolf Hitler. This is not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that introducing zones free of certain, supposedly free of certain categories of people are a repetition of a fascist gesture. So I don't need to call it neo-fascist or whatever because fascists would not maybe make zones free of gay men, but they would put gay men into camps, concentration camps, right? So therefore we can say that this, this homophobia institutionalized homophobia is an element of fascism. But in Poland and in Russia earlier, those zones were not created from the center. So it was not the Polish parliament who was debating the, uh, the, those homophobic zones. It was the local parliaments of regions, of, of, of cities, and sometimes of entire regions, voting for laws which were um, sometimes explicitly saying, we want to establish, I don't know, Lublin and the area of Lublin, an LGBT free zone. And right now, when the European Commission says, okay, we will cut your financing because we are not sure you're gonna use it according to the anti-discriminatory, you know, uh, agenda that we, that, we, that we have. They are saying, okay, we were not trying to be homophobic. So you say, you, you say we don't want LGBT, people in our region and then you say this is not homophobic so so they are now trying to build another uh, law saying that it was it's not um anti-lgbtq it's anti-gender like as if it changed anything like in that it's anti a particular as they would say ideology or gender ideology right is, is that what they say anti-gender which what does that mean? Presumably, they, they believe the gender exists as a concept. And, and this is this is where Baudrillard wins. This is where Baudrillard, you know, this whole theory of simulacra has been 
most fully realized by the ultra, ultra conservatives in Poland. Yeah? This is how they totally detached. So they did what uh, Roland Barth, you know, depicted in mythologies. They detached Sinifion from Sinifia in this master way. And then their uh, Sinifion has no sense whatsoever. No, it's nonsensical. So basically later Zizek, uh, you know, comes with more Lacanian take on it. And he says, okay, the majority of those supposedly powerful um, signifiers, they are empty. It's a floating signifier, it's an empty signifier. Why? Because it's contradictory on the inside. We have no idea what it means. There is no possibility of defining it. And yet it controls our way of thinking, of acting, etc., etc. This is precisely what Kaczyński and his allies in the Polish South and East regions do. They create, you know, another, uh, uh, another element of this is that the authors, because some activists from Poland, uh, four amazing people, um, two from Rzeszów, one from Kielce and another one from Kraków, created an interactive map. So you can find it under the name Atlas of Hate. You can find the map of Poland, which is interactive because you can click on it and then it tells you which regions have uh, signed, have voted for those anti-LGBT um, laws. And those activists are now facing, are now part of six different trials, court trials, being accused of something a bit lighter than defamation, but not much lighter. And there is like 150,000 zlotys fee for all these supposed defamations. So some notes from the court, uh, so, some, some gay and lesbian lawyers were supporting them and they went to the court with, with them and, and they, made some notes from the interaction between the judge and the accuser. So a member of the um, regional um, government comes there. And when the judge asks, okay, what kind of threats you want to protect your region from by banning LGBT people from the region? The threats against traditional Polish family, he says. Okay, so the judge says, okay, what, what is exactly this threat? What, what, can you enumerate some of those threats that the non-heteronormative people, you know, um, embody in your opinion. Uh, I don't know. Okay, so uh, is there any threat that you can specify? No. So there is no threat of Polish family, yes. That's exactly, I, 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 it wasn't difficult to memorize this, this fantastic conversation. So I'm giving it to you as a, you know, as, as, as uh, 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 Type, okay. you know, as a, it's basically it's almost a document and it proves <laughs> okay. no good reason whatsoever to to do this kind like those people have no idea basically. i'm kind of surprised it was so easy um i mean it's yeah it's, it, I, I would expect much more resistance to to the idea that there was just not nothing at all i want to kind of go back go back a tiny bit um and see if i can pivot into uh your your idea of counterpublics so you mentioned that there's a kind of um in some ways, an emptiness to the ways in which um, gender ideology or like just gender um, are opposed on the far right. Um, and Wendy Brown, in her in her book um, called um, "In the Ruins," which is uh, uh, in the in the ruins of neoliberalism, where she's discussing um, how it is that the far right is going to grow out of neoliberalism. And of course, um, Poland is a very interesting example of this, right? Having been very, very, very thoroughly neoliberalized in the post-communist period. Um, she says that there's a that something that these kind of the irrationalism or the kinds of the nonsense talk um, of, and she's talking particularly about Trump, 
what this nonsense talk does is not argue for a position, but reveal to those who want it revealed to them that the positions that he is taking are actually merely the positions of an arbitrary power that simply does what it wants and doesn't have to have a reason for what it's doing, why it's doing the thing that it's doing. And so in some ways that there's a kind of a pleasure in the fact that Trump can't give arguments, that he refuses to give arguments for the things that he does or did. And in maybe in the same way, there's a kind of a, uh, there's a pleasure in the, in the, in the not, in knowing there isn't a threat and yet having the power and just having the pleasure in exerting power already. That seems to me to be, um, the jouissance of fascism. This is exactly yeah, yeah. Um, that seems to me to be kind of like maybe in some ways quite historically distinct from um, the or, or sorry the way in which that power is then exerted seems to me to be quite distinct from um, now from how it was in the uh, um, in in the nineteen thirties and so on because in the nineteen thirties you have a very richly um, rich uh, civil life social life in Germany and Italy and Romania and so on. Um, they're very dense countries, uh, densely knitted with all different kinds of institutions, social institutions, which people are very heavily involved in. And what the kind of the period of neoliberalization, both in America and also perhaps in Poland, there are different ways in which the power yeah. to, in some ways, like just talk nonsense, but do things anyway, yeah. is exerted. On yeah, the one I, hand, yeah, there's a kind of... In, 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 I, I, love, I love the fact that you speak about the jouissance of fascism. And I think this is amazing and very important to emphasize the, um, the pleasure of, 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 of uh, execute, uh, executive power. Sometimes I even speak of the, you know, of the, of the sweaty hands of Leviathan, you know, trying to get direct access on, 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 on the bodies of the people. So not, not just citizens, but the bodies. Uh, when we mention neoliberalism and, and the, how neoliberal tra transitions have shaped and paved the way for fascism, I believe that Naomi Klein is a name that I would like to quote here and her shock doctrine. So basically the investigation into how shock therapy on the level of an institution, uh, individualized person has been translated into a ma magnificent, huge uh, scale um, uh, in the laboratories of neoliberal economy. So how the shock is a one effective sort of instance of, of today fascism because it is a shock to, to declare a whole region free of LGBT people. This is shock. This is, this is, many people woke up and were like, where am I living now? What do I do here? What can I do? How can my, and as, because I have to mention that those laws banning the, erasing supposedly the LGBTQ people from, from the regions, they are not laws. They, um, according to the Polish ombudsman, they do not agree with uh, laws, other legal acts on every level of Polish legal system and international law as well. So basically they disagree with constitution, with division of powers. Uh, regional government cannot make this kind of, you know, this kind of uh, erasures um, on their own. They have to listen to higher authority, which they didn't. So six of those laws have been sent to court on the request of the Polish Ombudsman, so the human rights officer of, 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 of the state of Poland, who is claiming that they in no way agree with, with administrative, constitutional, civic code, European law. That is in, so, so basically this law is also this kind of floating, it's a contradictory nonsensical blurb. It doesn't make any sense at all. If you read the, some of those, you can do it on this Atlas of Hate website. 
if you read those. So, so there is a jouissance also in producing this kind of nonsensical uh, stuff. And also, you know, this uh, you said that there was not so much resistance from the side of the um, local government in the court that I quoted. He doesn't have to, because he the government and the parliament is on his side. So that's the trick. He doesn't have to resist in the, in the courts. He can say that there is no threat and still claim that it made sense to sign this law or law in the quotation mark. Because he right now, the ultra-conservative activist Kaya Godek presented to the Polish parliament a law proposal to, to, to make Poland, entire Poland, the LGBT free zone. So we have this already sitting in our parliament and with the majority of the Kaczyński law and order party, we might expect that this will pass as nonsensical, as absolutely contradictory, as unfitted to, to the Polish legal system as it is, it can pass. So therefore our uh, version, our turbo neoliberal version of the um, fascist uh, political powers, they have the power of building on contradictory, nonsensical, pseudo-legal uh, uh, entities. They have the authority of building um, notions, anti-gender, what does that mean? I, I have no idea. And my friends, the researchers who, whom I quoted earlier, Elżbieta Korolczuk and Agnieszka Graf, they, they tried. There's nothing that makes sense in it. So, so yeah. we are sort of governed. So the, the contemporary biopolitics has this pure nonsensical aspect, yes. And it is extremely, it is, it is fulfilling a certain jouissance of I don't have to explain myself. This is very Schmittian, the, this, the, 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 the absolute authority of the state power, the monarch does not have to explain themselves. I think that um, the, the neoliberalism has created a sort of state of insecurity. And this is, but this is not so different from the pre-Second War, uh, Second World War insecurity of labor. So here we are in similar, because, you know, with the Ford, with the Fordist um, state and with the, uh, with the um, Cold War, the Western societies have embraced a lot of labor security that they've never had for massive parts of, of, of the populations. So therefore, you know, the, the, the labor situation in 1920s and 30s, all the insecurity and precarity that, you know, normal people, not aristocrats, aristocrats but normal people have been facing insecurity of labor on daily basis. It was super insecure. It wasn't stabilized by, by the state so much. It was a little bit stabilized, but not to an extent that we have reached in Europe in 1960s or 70s, where it was quite certain that if you had a job, you had your job and it was fine. In the 20s and 30s, people were as insecure, I would say, or similarly insecure as they are right now in terms of job. So I think I think so. the, compa the comparative argument comes from um, Dylan Riley's essay, What is Trump? But the Wendy Brown's account is just of neoliberalism. So she doesn't, she doesn't, she doesn't make the same kind of comparative. Um, and she should because she's trying to warn us against you know too simple too simple uh, too simple um, equation between 1930s and 19 uh, and nine and 2000 early 2000s, and she doesn't do the work of actually checking whether it wasn't perhaps similar and it was on the on the yeah. in the context of labor, the insecurity was quite similar. I wanted to kind of pivot from this idea of a arbitrary authority, um, and the way in which they rule over in neoliberalism, a kind of an empty civil society, a civil society without structure, without form, to ask how you therefore situate your notion of counterpublics. Mm -hmm. So what is a counterpublic? 
And how does it kind of rise up, particularly now, do you think, in relation to this kind of empty civil society or the civil society that has been um, shredded by uh, neoliberalism? So the shortest definition, basically, of the counterpublics is a public sphere of the excluded. That's that's a very short um, that's a very short definition. And uh, so for Nancy Fraser, the excluded are women, and therefore the feminist movement is a counterpublic. But if you look at the American um, North American uh, feminist movement, it is it is contradictory. So we can speak of a plethora of counterpublics rather than one. Um, public sphere of the of the oppressed or of the excluded. In Kluge's argument and uh, Kluge's next uh, argument back from the 70s, factory workers um, do create public sphere. They do discuss the common, but the common for them is something very different uh, than the common of the of the of the uh, elite groups. The common for the factory workers is worker work conditions and basically work. It's salary. It's um, rest. It's uh, uh, the creation of the community of the political community it's different uh, you know uh, but so so at, in the first part of, of of their book they discuss how different elements you know um uh, characterize the proletarian counterpublics rather than the um ideological uh, bourgeois uh, public sphere but then they discovered that actually the um the bourgeois, uh, the bourgeois uh, public sphere is not only excluding the workers, but is also imposed as a model onto the workers. So the movement again is contradictory, and this is how how nicely you know Hegelian kind of uh, you know uh, how nicely dialectical this concept is. So on one hand, the and also Marxist because this is precisely the, the criticism of ideology, right? It's that we do uh, share a certain set of beliefs which excludes us from the. Um, population of the of the of the of the, uh, of the capitalists of the privileged of the, of those who have a life basically that's what what proletarians have according to Marx is not a life it's survival so um, merely so it's it's a human reduced to the animal functions yeah that's the that's the situation of proletarians and this is I would say the situation of today's refugees but also today's working poor parts of the population so in Poland for instance with neoliberalism we have seen such so huge dismantlement of the labor uh, rights that it is unimaginable. We have several um, zones of special economic zones, they are called. So these are places where international corporations can build their factories with complete negligence of those remnants of labor codes that we still have. So people can be fired and hired on the demand. Basically, 19th century capitalism depicted in Engels's, you know, study of, of, of British proletarian. This came back in Poland in, in early 21st century. So after this dismantlement of any safety, security, um, and any rights, it's very difficult to imagine counter voices and counter publics understood as, for instance, a coordinated movement of, 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 of workers, especially if the model of factory is shrinking, it's less and less popular. So, um, and within this individualistic society, which, well, basically, um, you know, Margaret Thatcher has been a very prominent figure in the Polish political um, history since 1980s when she supported the solidarity movement. So it was one of the greatest paradoxes of contemporary history was to see you know, <laughs> Margaret Thatcher who just closed some shipyards in, uh, in Great Britain coming to Poland and greeting the shipyard workers um, you know, in, in, uh, in Gdańsk and in, War uh, well, in Warsaw, it was other factory workers, but still factory workers. 
how schizophrenic was that? It still remains to be, you know, uh, to be uh, discussed. But uh, by the sentence that there is no, not, no such thing as society, obviously, Thatcher and other people who shared those proto-neoliberal views and then neoliberal views, they have paved the road to fascism. Because if there is no such thing as society, there is only me and this leader, right? So the dismantlement of society, there is a direct way of understanding how neoliberalism contributed to today's fascism, which is basically that if you dismantle society, you build a direct connection between the individual and the sovereign power. So you build authoritarianism by killing um, the concept of society, the practice of society, the image of society, etc., etc. So, so counterpublics, as much as they are public spheres of the excluded, and then obviously after Kluge and Knecht, after Fraser, there have been Michael Warner with a discussion, beautiful discussion of the black counterpublics. There have been other authors who have written about peasants' counterpublics. Right now in Poland, we have a huge plethora of discussions of peasants, you know, resistance in the uh, past centuries under the serfdom. So there are, you know, there are efforts to, to actually prove uh, uh, Habermas wrong and to say that all kinds of groups of people have been building their public spheres in ways that perhaps differ, perhaps with different aims, et cetera, but still, um, so counterpublic was always aimed at the public discourse, at the hegemonic public discourse and trying to dismantle it. So today I would say that the international women's strike and you know the, the, the Polish women's strike back in, the, uh, in 2016 was a perfect example of counterpublics because it was opposing not only the existing government, which sometimes the normal liberal public sphere does. So in Poland, okay, once again, in Poland we had in 2016, the conservative government willing to ban abortion completely. We had the liberal elite, so the liberal public sphere, who was criticizing the conservatives, you know, to a very small extent, I would say. And then the infuriated women who were like, this is our bodies. This is, you know, the bodies of our daughters, our, you know, students, our friends, our bodies. We don't like, you know, the, the state has to stop <laughs> at our door, but not, you know, in the middle of our of, of our bodies. So as we so this is a beautiful example of you know the, the established state order, the public sphere which has critical function, but which does not dismantle the general division of public and private, apparently. And then we have the women who are like over our dead bodies, which are gonna be very numerous after the introduction of the ban of abortion anyway, unfortunately. So, um, so, so, so the counterpublics in Poland are now, for instance, feminist ones, but I'm, I go much further than anybody, I think in the critical theory tradition by saying that certain conservative mobilizations also I think deserve the name of counterpublics. So there I disagree with Nancy Fraser, for instance, or with uh, Krug and Necht, I'm not sure because they are too hybridic for that. Nancy Fraser is very sharp over there. And she says that counterpublics are always having those positive uh, emancipatory goals. I wouldn't say that. I don't, I, I, I don't see good reasons for this argument. And this is another discussion. But in my analysis, and this was supported by several of my friends, including Filip uh, Dwesołowski, who wrote about that, um, counterpublics can be you know, a public sphere of those who have conservative aims and yet they contradict the public sphere and the government's practice as well. So there is a triple kind of, uh, sorry, a twofold opposition on the side of the counterpublics, an opposition to the state apparatus and the existing power, 
state power and to the um, elitary counter discourse to this power. So, so, so counter publics is like the third position in this uh, agora, let's put it this way. Yeah, and you describe them as, as, as not only counter publics, but counter publics of the common, right? In particular, is that that's one particular that, yeah. species? I think it's very infuriating for many scholars, but I think that in in the um, in, in detail, the the common and the counterpublic, you know, the counterpublic as this depicted by Fraser, um, uh, Kluge and Necht and and, and Warner by Negri and Hart, they have a lot in common. So first of all, they they cover for what is shared between people, but also they cover for common as in you know ordinary. So basically, this this is where they meet. The the counterpublics usually are composed of people who are who have been excluded, who have been seen as not elitary enough to join the public sphere. And the common, in in English, it's it's, it's your word. Basically, I'm not going to try to even try to do it. But um, but it's it, it, it's you know it's 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 those people who don't matter basically who are like a mass of unindividualized, you know, unspecified, common, as in also similar to each other, as in ordinary, as in non-heroic. So, um, so when I say, when I speak of counterpublics of the common, I'm trying to combine two strands of, of theoretical discourses, the post-Spinozan kind of Marxism and the um, critical theory tradition, which is also Marxist and, and very heavily Hegelian at times. I try to show how they almost meet in this point where they discuss the common and the counterpublic. So when I say counterpublics of the common, somebody might say that it's a, you know, a pleonasm, a repetition of, of, of the same, but it's also not because counterpublics is a political format. And then the common is the you know, embodied entity that has it. So for instance, when I spoke with Antonio Negri, I had this doubt, you know, Gary Spivak has this beautiful argument, uh, can the subaltern speak? And my argument uh, towards uh, Negri and Hart was, can the multitude speak? <laughs> when does it, how does it speak? No, can, can this happen? So, because it can act, it can, it can fight, it can mobilize, it can do all kinds of things. It can dismantle capitalism possibly, um, but can it speak? Can it pronounce its, so this activity of, of articulation is a very rationalistic um, activity. And so Negri and Hart, and the Spinozian, also Warren Montag, fantastic Alchiserian scholar, they speak, they all, they all focus on discourse and, and language as rationalist, so as element of rationalist tradition, so as very exclusive uh, practice that they want to avoid. But my question is, can we live as humans without speech? And then, so is every speech act, you know, uh, oppressive? And there, you know, I, I side with Judith Butler, who speaks of, you know, hate speech as not always being oppressive because it doesn't always accomplish its purpose. So from this argument specifically, you know, built in the context of censorship and hate speech, I'm going, I'm taking it further and I'm saying, okay, speech is a limiting act. Heideggerians might be right in this aspect. Okay, it's, you know, alienating and, and all. But also it allows to articulate, you know, uh, um, to articulate the demands, to articulate the needs and to transform reality, right? So therefore the, um, uh, the counterpublics as a political format which focuses around debate and the making of demands is something that the common desperately needs to actually be the common. <laughs> 
otherwise it's so but so 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 to me these two notions if applied together or if um combined they because on the other hand the counter republics do not focus on the bodies it seems like as if they were disembodied in the descriptions uh, provided by theorists I mentioned, so Negrian Hart, so, sorry, so Kugan Next, so Fraser, etc. So when I, for instance, when, when we look at, at, at the concept of subaltern counterpublics, a beautiful concept from Nancy Fraser, we see that they are usually white and Western, and we don't want to see that. Not, nothing against white and Western people, but a lot against you know, the making of everything about white and Western people. <laughs> so, counter, so, so if we want to discuss the, the subaltern counterpublics, we have to embrace the diversity, hybridity, colonialism, exclusions and hierarchies that have been built in the geopolitics of colonial times. Also racialization and, um, and other forms of, you know, geopolitical exclusions. And only then we can use the notion of subaltern correctly. Otherwise, it's incorrect. It's, it's a misuse of the word. So basically, as much as I admire Nancy Fraser's you know, creativity in the making of this very concept of sub, uh, subaltern counterpublics, I think it's fantastic. The fact that she does not include any decolonial, postcolonial analysis in, the, um, in, the, in her discussion of, of counterpublics make it a weak kind of um, a, a weak concept. So, so for several years, I was using the notion subaltern counterpublics, but then I was reproached that, oh, Fraser already defined it. So I was like, no, she didn't, but okay, I can I can do counterpublics of the common, and then hopefully try to interject the anti-racist, anti-colonial uh, argumentation within it. And also the colonial ontology, one that you know allows the diversity of, of, of human embodiments to, to be at play. So I hope I answered the question. <laughs> uh, you mentioned kind of Heidegger's uh, like kind of oppressiveness of speech acts. Um, that Adam Knowles uh, wrote a very good book recently called Heidegger's Fascist Affinities, which is a, a discussion of the role of silence, particularly in fascism, as the kind of uh, sorry uh, the, the role of of silence in Heidegger as the kind of the core of his understanding of of what it means for a Volk uh, people to articulate itself without any kind of um, capacity for rationality and so on and so in some ways like this this capacity for silence or this kind of silencing is the other is the flip side of this kind of speaking nonsense and doing what you want anyway this kind of um schmittian sovereign i wanted to quote what you said back to you uh in the kind of conclusion of the book so this is cats publics of the common share the anti-fascist orientation so in kluger and next work it is explicit as it was in hartmas regardless of the problems with his little perspective in the works of hart and negri the common is not only anti-neoliberal but also anti-authoritarian Thus, the general anti-fascist line seems obvious. But then we come to the kind of the, the heart of the book, right? However, one more thing has to be acknowledged if the theory and practice of anti-fascism is to be contemporary and not merely historical, and that is feminism and the centrality of women's rights must sit at the core of our understanding of the contemporary state of exception. Now, of course, you've already gone into a huge number of the kind of different parts of that, but there it's kind of very condensed. There it's very kind of um, stated very clearly. So maybe you could argue maybe one more time for why exactly it is that you think particularly feminism and not, for example, anti-racist struggle, which mm -hmm. might also have its own kind of counterpublic. So I'm thinking not just of Michael Wenner, but also, for example, um, Fred Moten and Stefano Hani's uh, work in the undercommons, right, where they have the notion of the surround, which is the kind of the, it's not really a common, it's not really a counterpublic because it's not attempting to articulate claims in society as a whole, but it's a kind of pre-existent um, 
public life or a shared life rather and they emphasize sharing of publicity you know this is all getting into kind of the weeds a bit but my point is that why feminism and not for example anti-racism mm-hmm. mm-hmm. i believe that as uh, um as we s- mm-hmm. uh, okay first of all i don't think that anti-fascism is only reactive i think it's also it has its own sort of development and dynamics and this dynamic has been very much you know very much realized in the field of gender and identity in the last decades. So, you know, if I say that feminism is central, one of the reasons is that this has been the, the, the recent, meaning last 40 years development, where um, parallelly to anti-colonial struggles, to, to anti, anti-racist uh, theory and practice, feminism has developed tremendously. So if you look at feminist writings from early 20th century and today it's you know, it, it became a discipline, it became, you know, a social movement, it became an element of the mainstream as well, of, of mainstream politics. Um, I don't know, for better or, or worse, let's put it this way. And um, speaking, I'm thinking now of gender mainstreaming, for instance, and, you know, the um, corporate strategies of having, you know, diversity and having exploitation at the same time. It's incredible how clever those people are. And um, so anyways, and how some other people, including scholars, take it, you know, as a as a as a as a, as a good thing, um, surprisingly. So, um, so first of all, the, the the development of society and in particular developments of our contemporary culture and social movements, these have have been amazingly feminist. Second um, argument: um, the studies on fascism and the anti-fascist studies have been uh, and anti-fascist practice has been dominated by men for many years. If you went to any anti-fascist demonstrations in the 80s, in the 90s, you would see that, that there would be maybe 80% of, of men. And I'm not speaking about Poland only, I'm speaking about like globally, I also checked it for my own purposes with different activists in different places. So you would have this majority, vast majority of men and some women. Also because the anti-fascist demonstrations included physical violence. So therefore, for some reason, you know, women did not participate in it, but this has changed. And if you look at the structures of the Black Lives Matter movement, you see women at the core of this movement on the decision-making level, but also as embodied presence in demonstrations, protests, etc. So this is, for instance, in Warsaw, the Black Lives Matter demonstrations have been organized by women and have had 70% of, of feminine presence. This, for me, it was super touching as a, as a, as a feminist anti-fascist because for years, I would, you know, I would mourn the, ab- the absence of, of, of women there. And then finally, you know, I happen to come to demonstrations which are mainly um, uh, uh, filled with, with women. This, this is a shift. So, um, so, so there is a shift on the level of social movements, which is surprising and which is interesting, and which I think is rooted in this evolution in culture and social movements and research that I've been talking about earlier. Then third argument, the focus of fascists and of today's fascists is the human bodies. It's not only the color of the skin, actually the color of the skin has never been the focus because the focus was how to exploit people more. This was the focus. Basically there was class focus and there was gender focus. And the class focus was often disguised as racialized one. So that that would be my argument. So so to me, I'm not trying to say that the problem of racism should be reduced to, um, to economy because it's more complicated than that. But I would say that a very important part of, um, uh, of racism has been about um, the ability of pushing 
group, entire groups and populations into poverty, basically, and into exploitation. So then, um, and also um, the structure, the, 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 the composition of racist discourse, be it anti-Black discourse or being anti-Semitic discourse, they are anti-Arab discourse as well, they build the difference between the white supremacist and the, you know, the other, be it a Jew, an Arab, a black person, etc. They build it by the activity of opposition. So they build it exactly in the same way as the difference between men and women, in fact. All those, all those characteristics that you can find in this in the colonial discourse about lazy Arabs, lazy black people, lazy descendant, they can be trans, they can be, they can be um, traced down to the different distinction between the rational male and the irrational woman, the structured and formalized male and the unstructured, disorderly woman, etc. etc. So here I I'm looking at the heritage of Angela Davis. I'm looking very much at the, at, at the heritage of, well, of Spivak. I'm looking at very much as well, but there, um, I'm not sure if we have time for me to dwell on, you know, Spivak's <laughs> argument on the, on the impossibility, supposed impossibility of speech of the, of the subaltern, but this concept of subaltern, yeah? This, this is, I think, a good one because it covers, it focus, it allows a focus on the mechanism of exclusion rather than essentializing the threats that are used in the rhetorics of the exclusion. Once again, mechanism of repression should be targeted and should occupy much more space in our anti-fascist whatsoever theory, practice, anything, than the essentialized characteristics of the oppressed. So femininity, uh, dark skin, um, poverty, um, homosexuality, I don't know, other, other criteria of, of rejection, I think um, they, you know, in the fascist discourse, they, they, they change, there is a plethora of them and they are shuffled all the time, while the mechanism of exclusion, and the, there is one group which is always preserved, which is the white suprematist, and there I would be happy to have more focus on that group, who are these people who are entitled to all, you know, who, who are those executors of the state of exception? What kind of persona are there? So, um, okay, coming back to the question, which is why feminism and why women in the core? So um, to, to put it very shortly, the argument number four would be that the focus of anti-gender movements, um, of Trump, of Kaczynski, of everybody else is, to a, I think, larger degree about reproduction and sexuality than about other things. And also the possibility of preserving neoliberal rules of the capitalist production. So, and then, so, so then the, 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 the topic of race, how as important as it, and as central as it, as racialization, sorry, I don't want to, race is not, is precisely the essentializing, but racialization is the process. So the process of racialization is very, very um, important. Yet I believe it is today slightly less in the center than that of reproduction, of sexuality, and of, of production. And by then the, 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 the strategies of 
of exploiting. Then, um, as a as a fifth and final argument, I would look at the scholarship of anti-fascism, which and the general the popular thinking of anti-fascism, which usually proceeded in this way. At the center, we have political theory, and we discuss fascism and anti-fascism over there, and we locate, we situate feminism elsewhere, on the margin. So this has been the usual take on anti-fascism and feminism, or anti-fascism and women question. This, this used to be the, the pattern. I want to shift this pattern and see what is there. Perhaps in 10 years, I'm going to agree that I was wrong. Maybe you know, gender was exactly as uh, important as race. We'll see. But for now, the theoretical um, uh, and political uh, effects of putting feminism in the center of the analysis allows to see so much, so many things that we have not seen. For instance, the continuity of focus, fascist focus on bodies, reproduction, etc. The continuity of hatred towards what is weak, what is feminine, what is non-masculine, basically. Repeated in different contexts, in the context of race, in the context of, you know, ethnicity, of orientation, of, of even uh, uh, um, uh, economic status. Also, the arguments about the poor don't differ very much from the arguments against women in the context of, you know, how lazy and disorderly they are. It's the same arguments. So therefore, and I think the, the feminist theory by supplying the um, understanding of performative production of gender and other forms of masculinity, allowing the understanding of reproduction as a core element of pr productive circle within capitalism. I think this is, um, these are aspects, arguments, which we cannot avoid anymore. So therefore trying to build, you know, an understanding of fascism as being bad because it excludes some people. Yeah, that's that's right, it, it does that. But it does that in, or, in, in, a, in, a, in a structure where reproductive uh, powers of women have to be controlled. And we cannot just, you know, continue to situate this central issue of reproduction on the margin. This doesn't lead us anywhere because we're gonna, we're, we're not gonna be, if we do that, we're not gonna be capable to address the um, contemporary fascist um, uh, strategies. Also this whole uh, homophobia, it is also about population. It is also about reproduction. It is about people who are refusing to do the reproductive scenario, right? to a big extent, there are other things that matter there, but this is also an element like, oh my God, they might not, you know, fulfill our biopolitical uh, grief. What about them? So I would say, let's try. So my, I can weaken this argument also, and I can say, okay, let's try to have feminists in the core of anti-fascist analysis, practice, etc. And let's see what, what, is, what it's gonna change. To what extent we might be more effective perhaps because this is another, and this is you know maybe the last argument. It's about effectivity of anti-fascism. I mean, how long more can we discuss whether it's neo-fascism or post-fascism? How long more can we discuss, you know, solidarity, anti-Semitic or otherwise racist politics of fascism? How how long more can it take? We have done that already to a certain extent, to a, to a degree that is sufficient, I would say, to take um, further steps, yeah, to develop it a bit more. But we did not include 
fascism, we did not, sorry, perceive uh, feminism as the core of anti-fascism. This operation has not been done yet. I mean, um, Tavalite tried, uh, Wilhelm Reich uh, uh, tried. There were some, you know, Deleuze and Guattari, I believe, also were going that direction, right? So, um, so why not trying that? And why not seeing how anti-fascism is going to evolve with a, so this is maybe strategic, you know, imposition of feminism at the core of anti-fascism. Let's see what it does to our practice and theory of anti-fascism. Because I think it can really be helpful. And what I see, you know, five minutes after inserting feminism at the core of anti-fascism, is it changes the whole uh, it change, changes the whole perspective, and also it is more effective because then you can challenge the right wing exactly where they stand. You don't have to you know make big maneuvers, you know, including or adding or in, allowing feminism. In. You have feminism at the core, and then if you address if you address fascism from from that side. It allows you to uh, challenge, to undermine, to, to oppose and resist and criticize those very elements that have always been at the core of fascism, the elements of heroism, the elements of, you know, this imposition of heroism. I don't know if I, I think I do it in my book as well, but I do it in some articles definitely. This argument that in Poland right now, we have the imposition of heroism on Polish men by means of uh, revitalizing the heroic past of Poland, uprisings, you know, all those moments where Poland was showing so much bravery. And then there is also an imposition of heroism towards women, which is done by means of abortion ban and very restrictive, you know, um, reproductive rights uh, uh, policy and the demand that women should give birth whatever happens, whatever are the costs, at whatever. So this is heroism. But you know the, the version for, for women. So if you do this kind of operation, you have first of all one theoretical, you know, concept of heroism being the imp being imposed on the on the whole population with gender differences, and it allows to look at fascism at, as a form of biopolitics, as a form of embodiment or um, enforcement towards you know certain versions of embodiment. And I think it's more contemporary, it's more, uh, you know, updated, uh, coming back to this Aristotelian, you know, <laughs> uh, concept of truth being based on correspondence, which, which we rejected at first. But, you know, look, look at the world via these lenses. If you look at the Polish contemporary uh, situation as one which, in which the, 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 the government imposes heroism in different versions, you have the whole society sort of you know, becoming your focus. You have one notion that organizes two different, very different, supposedly very different practices, etc., etc. So, and I believe that the means of feminist theory of reproductive labor, of reproduction of the body, of identity, you know, feminist theory understood broadly, so also queer theory and, and gender theory and all this. If positioned at the core of anti-fascism, it allows to see the embodied, materialized, you know, it allows, you know, anti-fascism to be materialist, finally, after decades. So, yeah, the, the, those would be my arguments, and I could go on, but I'm... <laughs> I have one last question, which is about the, uh, the other side of heroism, or non-heroism. You talk about weak resistance, 
in the book. Mm. It's the kind of the, one of the main concepts that you kind of develop. Um, you draw on inspiration from uh, Jack Havelston and from uh, uh, J- uh, James James C. Scott and also from Deleuze and Guattari and so on. You know, different, lots of different theorists. Um, I was wondering if you could just give us kind of brief praise of what exactly weak resistance is and how you understand it. So weak resistance has several um, layers. On a most general level, I think it is a sort of challenge to um, to the classical understanding of political agency, as we were taught in schools and universities, some of us. So basically, the classical understanding of political agency emphasizes the exceptionality, heroism, in- individuality, as uh, you know, signs of political agency. Therefore, somebody who, as we have in Poland, merely sits with children at home, end of quote, is not doing political agency. Or somebody who is just sitting on the street is not doing political agency. Political agency comes on a horse, you know, with 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 arms, with with soldiers, with victories. So there are. There are aspects of political agency that have been shaped according to the male socialization scenario very much. There is a very beautiful book, not yet translated into English by Achille Mbembe, uh, Brutalism, where he speaks of the mechanism of erection as a model for, <laughs> for colonial uh, you know, uh, agency, for all kinds of you know, capitalist crimes, et cetera, et cetera. So he goes that far. I'm, I'm not yet there, but. You know, when I read his book, and it was funny because there were two books that were depicting the physiology of human body, gendered bodies. So one of them was Brutalism of Ashley Mbembe with this focus on erection as this model or um, uh, um, scenario. And then you have the book by Catherine Malabou uh, depicting the clitoris on the other hand. So for me, these two books should be published, you know, in one volume because they're, they're fantastic. They, and these are two highly abstract scholars. And then suddenly they just, you know, pick those points in human bodies and say like, this is, this is important. And I believe, you know, the legacy of feminist studies lies behind it. So this is again, to add to the past, to the last question, uh, the, the question before, sorry. But then weak resistance. So on one hand, we have to revise the models, uh, the theories and the practices also of political agency. Because if we understand it only based on the male, um, you know, heroic scenario, um, obviously the 90% of, of the global population is excluded. Hmm? Also animals, the non-human sort of agency is also excluded. If we want to, you know, have this nice post-anthropocene kind of version of political agency, we have to restructure um, our thinking of not only the subject, but also the kind of political agency they do. So for instance, there is Václav Havel, the uh, former you know, Czech oppositionist and later the president of the Czech Republic, who wrote the essay about, uh, which, which was called um, The Power of the Powerless. And he speaks of ordinary resistance as opposed to the heroic and brave one. The essay was published in, the, in my year of birth, uh, 1978. And it speaks of shop assistant, who does not, you know, who doesn't have any idea of how he could resist, you know, the, the Cold War, the, the war of the empires, basically. And um, here, actually, Havel is indebted in Jan Patochka, another um, Czech, um, Czech philosopher, fantastic, uh, uh, fantastic philosopher, who, who, who was discussing the perplexed, the shaken, as, as the mode of, of, of subjective, you know, epistemology and... and uh, and uh, identity. So Havel inherits this uncertainty from Patochka, and he 
And also he, he speaks of the world being divided between two big forces, you know, the West and the East, the, the US and the, and the USSR and, and, you know, and how small we might feel in this fixed political reality and how any resistance might sound therefore futile. And then he comes up with the idea of this everyday resistance of not hanging a state flag on the days that, you know, that announce it, not going to, I don't know, marches. So resisting on daily uh, level. Um, then there is Jack Halberstam, a very different uh, reference, uh, uh, you know, somebody who, 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 who wrote about the queer, uh, the queer resistance, about the um, queer failure, and failure being a form, a mode of resisting neoliberal effectivity and productivity. So this argument I like very much because it covers for today's, you know, productivity. Um, and also, I think the, the way I write books is, uh, I think my subconscious kind of efforts to just put a stick in this in this wheel of production. Yeah, it's kind of like no, it's going to be a bit more difficult. You're going to have to spend more time because we we don't need to be in such a hurry. So basically, all those weaknesses um, are basically um, to be um, perhaps rehabilitated. I, I would say I would say this perhaps rehabilitated because. The, um, I think the, I mean, in the, I believe that um, uh, Greta Thunberg and all those young people who are now building the, the movement against extinction um, and fighting against um, uh, climate catastrophe, they are very nicely expressing the sense of being overwhelmed that we feel today in the confrontation with ecological uh, crisis. This has been also discussed by uh, Naomi Klein and by Donna Haraway, who in her book, uh, Staying with the Trouble, warns against easy techno fixes on one hand. So those tools that, you know, we're gonna, with this thing, I'm gonna save the world. You know, I'll just put it there, plug it here, and the eco crisis is gonna be dismantled. So techno fixes, no. And then on the other hand, the melancholia coming from the, the sense of being overwhelmed also not an answer for Donna Haraway. So weak resistance is a concept that allows to, to regroup, you know, looking at the military, you know, I'm, I'm quite indebted in the different analysis of the avant-garde of, of all the, there is, the, there is lots of military references here. So regu regroupment being one of them. So weak resistance allows for certain regroupment in our thinking of political resistance on one hand, in our thinking of who can be a political subject and what counts as political agency, because suddenly we can we can find uh, you know care activities a part of the resistance. We can uh, locate self care as a part of resistance, which is super important, I think. Looking at all the burnouts that I've witnessed, you know, and survived also um, on the side of anti-fascist struggle. So weak resistance is also a, an effort to rehabilitate those forms of agency that did not count as political until now. And they should become, you know, they are so obviously the feminist theory and practice is struggling to embrace, you know, reproductive labor, for instance, as part, as possibly also part of the struggle and definitely as political. Um, queer uh, studies, uh, you know, do a lot of work uh, to embrace the um, small acts of resistance consisting in crossing the you know, binary. Um, uh, performance of, of, of gender, uh, but also in James Scott, uh, obviously we see uh, marching, you know, and, and other kind of bodies in the street activities as elements of resistance. 
So uh, this is this is another um, aspect of the weak resistance, and another yet another aspect I think is a sense that you know the weak resistance as opposed to the heroic vision of political agency is perfectly suited for imagining collective or common political agency as opposed to the individualistic ones. So there is a sense of more than individualism in the weak resistance, which is absent, I think, in the individualist, classically liberal and otherwise um, classical, even I think in socialism, the heroic vision of you know, the proletarian who will dismantle bourgeoisie on his own has been always, and historically it has been contradicted with images of proletarians, of women, uh, of, of, of children even doing all kinds of political agency. So, so therefore the, um, the weak resistance is also such a concept that I think is much more helpful in thinking beyond the paradigm of individualism. And here I, I was super happy to see Judith Butler's uh, recent uh, texts where she also claims that um, individualism has to be replaced with some kind of, you know, that this concept of individual has to be dismantled. This is also very much of the point of Nagri and Hart where they speak of the common, precisely as opposed to individualized sort of Western subject. This is, I believe, present to a big extent in black feminist um, um, theorizing where they speak of, you know, family and uh, all kinds of networks based on kinship and friendship and solidarity as opposed to the individual white men oppressing the black population, right? So the resistance within the black scholarship very often has this group or collective aspect um, and also employs um, strategies of the oppressed, obviously. So the, the other aspect of the weak resistance is that it is strategies of the oppressed. It is not exactly the tools of the landlord, yeah? the tool that Audrey Lord was, was quite um, beautifully um, undermining as a possible tool, tool for emancipation. So I don't know if this answers, but this would be some sure. remarks. Yeah, this is a, this is a very <laughs> thorough account of the <laughs> weak resistance. We've been going for almost two hours now. I thought this has uh, been far longer than I uh, had intended, but uh, thank you very much for giving such kind of rich and interesting answers to all my kind of uh, questions and provocations. Uh, the book is uh, feminist anti-fascism counterpublics of the commons it's out now from verso i highly recommend it go and get it listeners and uh thank you very much to you for coming thank you so very much and have a good day i was very uh happy to to have this very long conversation so good luck with <laughs> <laughs> and thank you so much for the interest and your kind words on on the book Thanks a lot for listening. If you enjoyed that, then you can go over to Patreon, where we now have a whole bunch of more premium episodes and essays and other things like that. We're also starting a book club for people who want to get more into this stuff. You can read along with us. We'll talk about it. We'll have regular Zoom calls. It'll be great fun. And on the higher tier, we'll even send you a copy of our two books when they drop. That's patreon.com slash 12 rules for what. All the support we get means a lot to us and it really does help us grow this project. And thanks a lot for listening again and I'll see you very soon. What's up, y'all? I'm Pearson, host of Coffee with Comrades. Coffee with Comrades is rooted in militant joy. Our hope is to cultivate a warm and inviting atmosphere, like walking into your favorite coffee shop to sit down with some of your close friends and share a heart-to-heart -heart conversation. 
New episodes premiere every Tuesday, so be sure to smash that subscribe button wherever you get your podcast so that you never miss an episode. We are proud to be a part of the Channel Zero Network. Twelve rules. Oh,